Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Thank you all for subscribing on iTunes and following me on social at Primalosophy. If you're a new fire recruit or firefighter, just shoot me a message at Primalosophy.com and I'll teach you everything you need to know for career-long well-being. Today I'm speaking with Todd White, the CEO of Dry Farm Wines, an organic, biodynamic farmed wine with zero added sugar, free of chemicals and additives. Todd is a writer, speaker, and leading authority on natural wines. He's also an avid meditator, eats one meal a day, ketogenic dieter, and is on the show today to educate us on all things wine. Dry Farm Wines offers a 100% happiness promise on every selection, so go check them out at dryfarmwines.com slash Nick and let me know what you think. Enjoy the episode. Todd, thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. So just to kind of set the stage a little bit, for those who are less familiar with you, can you just give me a little bit about your background and the background of Dry Farm Wines? Well, I've been a biohacker for 25 plus years before biohacking was even a term, Um, beginning with, I guess, experimentations really with dieting, you know, with the Atkins diet, early sort of experimentation before you know, keto became keto. There was the Atkins. And, uh, and even then, uh, it just wasn't well understood. It's highly controversial. But then about five years ago, I really, really leaned deeply into biohacking of all descriptions and sorts. But among them, I also became ketogenic five years ago and, and remain keto today and also very active and different fasting protocols. I eat once per day. I've been eating once per day for about three years now and do all kinds of experimentations with extended fasting and alternate day fasting and so on and so forth. But uh, so that was sort of how it began. I was a lifelong wine drinker. I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. So I really had a lifelong love affair with wine. All right. And, um, and then about five years ago, I discovered that I couldn't really drink wine anymore, and I didn't know why. And so I thought it was really initially, I thought it was just higher alcohol level. Alcohol levels in wine have been climbing pretty steadily over the last 30 years. What were you so experiencing for, that when you say that you couldn't just drink? Just brain fog, uh, not feeling well, uh, just headaches, just adverse ref, uh, uh, effects from, from drinking. And I think it was – a probably a number of cofactors that led to this kind of change from like, Hey, I've, you know, been drinking wine and doing okay with it too. I'm not doing okay with this. Probably a pretty radical shift in my nutritional programming, probably aging, probably, you know, wines were getting more toxic. I mean, it was just a, you know, combination of cofactors that led to negative remnants from drinking wine. And so as it turns out, I'd been feeling bad for many years. I just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize the impact that commercial wines were having on my otherwise, you know, life of wellness because I thought that's just what wines tasted like and made you feel like. So until I started drinking, you know, lower alcohol, natural wines are additive free and super clean. Then you have a completely different feeling. Then you realize, well, I was really feeling bad for a lot longer than I thought. I just didn't realize I was feeling that bad. So anyway, that's that's so Dry Farm Wines was not a it was not an expedition in creating a business. Um, I was actually not working at the time. It, it was really 
um, I wasn't looking to create a business. I was trying to solve a personal problem that I had, which was I loved wine, but didn't love drinking it anymore. Or feeling like shit. Yeah. So, so basically that was, you know, so it was, it, it, it became an accidental business. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, but it, it didn't kind of start out that way. So just, just my interest in wellness, my interest in an extending health span, my interest in, in you know, experimenting with various biohacking regiments and, you know, just really optimizing the living experience. So yeah. when I think about biohacking, I think about, or, you know, or primal ancestral thinking or any you know, kind of ways that I approach how to optimize the life experience. And that sort of was just the path. Yeah, there's a lot that I want to unpack there. But first, tell me a little bit about the culture at Dry Farm Wines. It seems like it'd be an awesome place to work. Well, we have, you know, this is a grand experiment. So we are all biohackers. There's 32 of us. And um, and so, you know, we we have a very extensive interview process. Our interview process takes on average just over two months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a rather lengthy process. It's intended to have people a select out of the process and then, you know, a rigorous sort of undertaking, uh, that is designed to identify people who are going to fit well in our culture. <clears throat> so our job postings are 12 pages long. In the job posting, it describes we're hiring now. And for anybody who wants to see the job postings, we're always hiring. We uh, can never find enough people to keep up with our growth rate. People that we love and want to work with, we get a lot of applicants. But you can see our job postings at dryfarmwines.com forward slash family. But we begin every day with an hour of meditation and gratitude therapy and other practices that take between one and one and a half hours. And we don't start that until 10 a.m. So we start rather late in the day. We want to protect everyone's morning. These are not people. These are biohackers. These are performance-oriented individuals. They're not laying in the bed until 9.30. Most of them are up between 5 and 6, I would imagine. But I want to protect their morning for family time or for reading or for quiet and peaceful time or reflective meditation on their own. I like I have an individual meditation practice as most other people do here and gym time. I go to the gym in the morning. So, you know, we want to protect the morning. So we meet at 10 and then we have this meditation and other practices that go from 10 until sometime between 11 and 1130. And then we start creating generally around 1130 in the morning. Between 11.15 and 11.30, we start kind of creating value in the world. And so, and then we close at around 5 in the afternoon, between 5 and 6. And we have a lot of other kind of unusual practices and rules. We don't send emails before hours or after hours. We don't send email over the weekend. We rarely um, maybe once a month, send an email to all. It's all, it's a very, very rare thing. Uh, and the reason for these email practices is that I believe that email is the single most destructive element to most people's peace and wellness in their, in their life of creation. Mm -hmm. So, 
the amount of disruption to peace and peace is the single most important thing that we focus on. So we have a document that we, that outlines the values of our business called the peace and profit manifesto. So we believe that profit follows peace. And so most people, including myself prior to this company and this experiment, most people achieve financial success in life by striving and um and we um we believe that that peace provides for a life of thriving which is very different than striving so striving is clawing and and working all the time and sending emails out around the clock and you know just feeling that we don't work on the weekends you know i mean there's you know i've had I've been self-employed since I was 17, so I've had a number of companies, and most of them, all of them other than this one, uh, were built either successfully or failed through striving, right? So we, we just, you know, the reason that we have this extensive interview process is it's really important that people come into our environment with open arms and an open heart and with light-filled spirit to embrace what is, you know, a very unorthodox culture. And so it's a culture where we talk about family. It's a culture where we talk about love. It's a culture where we have unlimited pay time off, where we have unlimited expense policy, where we just ask you to think. We teach you to consider. My job is to teach people here how to make good judgments. And so, you know, if you can about an expense or or about travel or about time off or about scheduling yourself around the world to do whatever you want, wherever you want, then you ask yourself three questions. First of all, is this decision I'm about to make, whether it's an expense or a trip or whatever, is this decision, is it reflective of self-love? Right. And am, am I making this decision in self-respect? And so the second question I'd ask is that if this decision were to see the air of public scrutiny from your peers, from your colleagues, would they think it's a respectful decision? And number three, is it respectful to the business organization, this request that you're making? If you can answer yes to those three questions, you've likely made a good judgment. And that's sort of how we teach people to think about that kind of freedom, because with freedom comes immense responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And so you can't give people this kind of freedom unless they have what we call self-directed responsibility. So I don't want to have to manage you. I want you to think about how your behavior reflects upon you and the people around you, mm-hmm. right? And so what we call self-directed responsibility, you can't have this kind of freedom without people being highly aware of who they are and how their actions impact those around them. Right. Yeah, Todd, I mean, it's unfortunate that this culture isn't more common because I'm pretty sure you just described everyone's dream job. For achievers, for doers, and part of our interview process is to determine whether or not this individual is a doer. See, doers think about things. Doers want to contribute. 
all they know to do is do, right? And so we have an interview process that's in part uh, designed to determine whether or not they're really a doer at core. Mm -hmm. And so I only work with doers. Like of the 32 people, every single person is a contributing rock star. And that's not true at my prior companies. You know, there are always hierarchies of people who did more than others, right? So, you know, 40% of the people did 90% of the work, Mm -hmm. right? And the rest of the people were, you know, contributing at various levels. And if the organization's big enough, you have some people who even get to hide, right? And they kind of get lost in the organization. And so we, you know, it, it is ideal and it does work, but it only works if everyone is highly committed and at their core is a doer, right? And so they're the people who stand out in the room. They're the people who, you know, when you have a great waiter, a great service experience, and you have a great call center experience, when you have you know, great experience interacting with other people, then, you know, those people are very rare. And, and you know, they're hard to find. Because doers, the other unique thing about them and why we've been very successful in recruiting some, right? So I just we just just recently recruited two. One who was a server at a hotel in New York who was just the light of the room. And I was like, man, you're way underemployed here. You know, and so it's like, you know, these people stand out. But the problem is, see, the doers, the people who create immense value in the world, they're employed doing what they do. Right. right? They're not looking for a job. It's rare to find them. It's very rare to find them. You have to find them just at that right moment. It's very rare to find them. They're they're never unemployed ever, right? There we have, we've never. I cannot think we've ever hired anyone who was unemployed, right? I mean they they're always working, and usually you know because they're engaged in what they're doing, they're generally not kind of open to leaving where they are. Right. Mm Because they just enjoy creating value. So they're really, really hard to find. And um, so, you know, it's it's people ask me all the time. It's like and it's a common question to get on podcast or, you know, it's people just in general who want to talk about business. They ask, what is the most challenging thing about your business? And I was like, well, the single only challenge that we have really is finding enough people that we love and want to work with. And, you know, even our business has grown 700 X in the last three years. I mean, even though, I mean, it could have grown faster if we had more people, you know, we just, we're just super, super dedicated to this discipline we have around, uh, hiring people. And, uh, and generally even then it's a roll of the dice, even as much energy and effort and money we put into it, even then it's still oftentimes, you know, you just, you know, we get it right most of the time, you know, and it's, it's, uh, anybody here, if you ask anybody in the organization, what's the single most important thing we do? And anyone would tell you that it's hiring, you know, just because that component, you know, life business is kind of like dating. I mean, it'd be great if it didn't involve other people. Right. And so I mean, the real challenge to life is interpersonal relationship management. That's the whole challenge of life. If, you know, if you're enjoying a peaceful 
present moment by yourself, there's just absolutely nothing that can interrupt that. Mm. Right. And so this, this concept of living a peaceful life while in the presence of others is the real trick. And that, you know, that's pervasive throughout everything we do in life. I mean, whether it's marriage or dating or friends or, uh, or just interacting with people as we do throughout our daily life. And, you know, and, and they're just fucking confounding. It's like, what, why the fuck would you think that that's cool? Right. right? Yeah. And so it's like, and so, you know, and, and then you, you know, you marry that with this concept of I spend more time with the people I work with than anyone else in my life. Right. And mm-hmm. so it seems to me that those should be people that I love. Right. I yeah. mean, I should like have really warm feelings about the, these people that I'm spending all this time with. And it's easy for you to agree. You're a smart man that, you know, the people we spend the most amount of time with with will have the greatest single impact on the quality of our life more than anything else, mm-hmm. more than anything else. The quality of people that we spend time with will have the greatest determinant of who we become. Right. And so for me, it's just like I, I, we just lean a lot of energy into that concept and thought. For me, you know, I work in the fire service. I'm, I'm working for 24 hours with these guys, with six guys. So obviously it's important on who you're spending a lot of your time with. Yeah, it's, you know, the problem with the problem with almost all of humanity is that the consciousness level is so low, the vibration is so low that people spend almost all of their existence caught up in the trauma of thinking, whether that would be a prison of their past or the trauma of the future. You know, I it's uh, for all the time spent in anxiety, this has become the human condition. I mean, it's always been present, but, you know, but it's become the human condition that uh, that we are consumed with the past or usually more importantly, anxieties of the future, things that we believe bad things are going to happen that, of course, never happen. But we spend all this time in the trauma of thinking about the possibilities of what might happen although it rarely ever happens. Mm-hmm. And so, which is why meditation, in our view, is the single most important practice that an adult, that will, any human can have, but particularly for adults, because it allows us to find silence away from that trauma, right? right? Uh, lots of other things do <clears throat> as well, you know, television, entertainment, porn, sex, alcohol, drugs. I mean, there are lots of ways to escape the trauma of thinking is just I find meditation is the healthiest way. Right. And you and I both seem to have or see the importance in a daily routine, especially a morning routine. Now, did you mention that you have your own meditation practice and then you come to work and then you all get together and meditate again? I do. And most people here also because they value, uh, you know, because they place so much value in the meditation practice. Most people here as well have, um, have an individual practice, but yes. So I get up and I have a 40 minute, uh, a 40 minute practice, uh, generally just after I get up, it's, it's oftentimes the, the first thing that I do. Not always. Sometimes I'll do other things before, um, 
before I meditate, but generally it's the first thing I do in the morning. It's about 28 minutes of concentrated meditation, and then I have another 10 or 12 minutes of gratitude and maybe journaling or, um, you know, visualization, affirmations, that kind of thing. Now, what do you find that happens if you're not able to conduct that meditation in the morning? Well, I don't, I don't think anything happens. Uh, I don't think anything happens in the, in the near term. Now, if you were to miss multiple, if I miss a day, I don't really feel any, I miss multiple days. Then, then that's, that's clearly, you know, that can, I, I mean, that doesn't really happen, but, um, Occasionally, and I travel, you know, just, you know, international travel occasionally a day or two or three can go by and I just can't find a place to, I just don't find the, the space to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and time changes and planes and it can just be, you know, you can, I feel something after two or three days, but, but missing a single day because, you know, meditation is a, is a practice. And so what meditation is really doing for us is teaching us how to be present and at calm throughout the day when we're not meditating. So, you know, you may have epiphanies and you may have like exceptional moments of meditation, but the real value of meditation is teaching the mind to be quiet and present. And over time, you're just able to extend that throughout your day. And really, again, meditation teaches us to understand the conscious and subconscious mind it teaches us to understand the importance of guarding the subconscious mind and not allowing the egoic mind to get in the way of this again this trauma of the past or you know for most people it's the anxiety of the future such a huge challenge in today's day with modern technology and everything but also on the other side of that coin, it's a huge accomplishment to be able to have that peace of mind throughout the day. Well, I mean, I'm not enlightened, so it's, I'm just aware, you know, I've had an awakening about five years ago when I began a meditation practice, but you know, I just, it it just, for most people, you know, they, they, you know, for most people, they don't accept the responsibility of being in control of their destiny. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't expect they don't they don't understand the responsibility of emotional control. Right. And so it's like people, you know, they don't understand that attachment is the cause of all suffering and attachment for generally for most people is the attachment of how other people treat them. So they'll say things like, well, he makes me sad. No, he doesn't make you sad. You make yourself sad by the way you choose to process the way he has treated you, mm-hmm. right? And so that so we've got to accept and own the responsibility for our destiny. And this plagues most people from not being kind enough to themselves, you know, to subject themselves to all of this anxiety about, again, these things that are never going to happen. They have this film and this loop in their head that just goes on and on and on you know, obsessive thinking and trauma. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, and I really like this quote, Thomas Jefferson said, how much pain has caused us the evils that have never happened? Right. Right. How much pain has caused us the evils that have never happened? And, you know, 
Socrates also said, he who worries most worries before it is necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? And this, this is how most people spend their lives. And therefore, when they spend their life like that, they're really not able to tap into that channel of abundance and that channel of love, right? Because there's so much resistance, there's blockage, there's so much blockage, right? So they're not able to receive really their birthright innocence of abundance and love because they're blocking so much, mm. you know, with all this trauma of thought. Yeah, it's like, how can you expect to understand yourself if you never create that negative space? Well, most people don't do that. And, you know, so I have the great fortune of being in a grand experience experiment with 30 other people who are, you know, very receptive to this way of thought and to these teachings. And so um, they, you know, so it makes for a highly highly loving and peaceful culture, which mm-hmm. is, which is way more important to us than money. I mean, we're very successful, but financially, um, I don't think having financial achievement is the definition of success, but we've been very, uh, abundant in our financial success. But, but, and so people, people also, oftentimes the other thing that's interesting <clears throat> is that people get, people get, people get financial success and peace in the wrong order. So, you know, it's quite common. People say to me, well, you know, you guys, you know, you run this huge business very properly. You guys make all this money. It's like, you know, we touch a lot of lives. It's like, it's easy for you to be at peace because you're very successful. It's like, no, you've got, you have that reversed. We're very successful because we're very peaceful. Mm-hmm. And so, People like to say, oh, it's easy. You you can be peaceful, right? Because you guys have got it all figured out. So no, 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 no. That's wrong. That's in reverse. You have to be peaceful first, and then it will come to you right. without any effort at all. All you have to do is manifest a life of peace and just manifest exactly what you want. And if you're at peace and you're open, it will come right to you, mm-hmm. right, without any effort at all. I mean, just virtually no effort. It just come right to you. Right. And you can tell people, not, this is not new ideas. This is, the Stoics talked about this. The, you know, there's the law of attraction, the secret, the, you know, Earl Nightingale, to W. Clement Stone, to Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. I, this, none of this is new information. It's just to get people to practice it is really, really challenging. Right. Now, to summarize, you know, one can achieve that internal peace or peace of mind by, you know, cultivating indifference to things that are outside of their control and then realizing that the only thing in your control is your attitude and your actions and also not regretting the past or future planning and being present. Now, what about peace of body? So moving on from meditation, how you eat, how you exercise and manage sleep and stress is a sign of self-respect. So moving towards the dry farm wines, what separates dry farm wines um, from other wines and why do biohackers kind of gravitate towards it? Here's what's happening in commercial wines. And so it's the same, it's the same plague of poison that has fallen upon our food supply. And it's called money and greed, driven by massive corporate consolidation. Mm-hmm. So this is really the story. <clears throat> of what's going on in, in the wine business today. And exactly the same thing that happened in our food supply before it happened in the wine supply. So 
I'm going to give you a bunch of statistics and facts. Everything I'm about to tell you is all verifiable from a simple Google search. So the wine industry has been very successful in keeping some really dark and dirty secrets hidden away from the public. And I'm going to tell you how they've done that. And so it begins with massive corporate consolidation money and power and lobby money, right? Because this is really a collusion between the wine industry and the United States government and its politicians and elected officials. So here's how it all works. 52% of all the wines manufactured in the United States are made by just three giant conglomerates. And the top 30 companies, wine companies in the United States, make over 70% of U.S. wines. Now, you have no idea about that. And the reason you don't have any idea about it is because these multi-billion dollar marketing conglomerates hide behind tens of thousands of brands and labels to confuse you, to have you believe that you're drinking from a farmhouse or a chateau. That's how they market wine. Mm-hmm. So these wines, you go in your grocery store, you see this big, long shelf, six, eight shelves high, you know, 50 feet long. Most all those wines are made by just a handful of companies, right? And so they're made in massive manufacturing facilities in Central California. <laughs> Excuse me just a second. You can edit that out. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the, so these massive factories, right, which is where these wines are made. So here's how they do it. Here's how they market it. And then I'm going to get to a whole bunch of other dark, dirty secrets they have. But here's how they market it. So you've probably heard of a family winery in California called Robert Mondavi Wines, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very famous Napa Valley brand there, right on Highway 29 in the Napa Valley. I live in Napa. Right in the center of the valley, right in the heart of the valley, is Robert Mondavi Winery. It was built in 1964 by Robert himself, who's now deceased. It was designed this tasting room and beautiful winery, idyllic, very, you know, picturesque, sitting in a in a vineyard of a thousand acres of of great farming. It is this beautiful building that's iconic. It was one of the first iconic tasting rooms built in the Napa Valley when wine and tasting rooms became entertainment. And this iconic building was designed by a very famous mission-style architect named Cliff May in California. In fact, on all Robert Mondavi wine labels, this building or the, the, the facade of this building appears on the label. It's a very famous mission-style architecture so here's here's how this corporate deal works so about 12 years ago the world's second largest wine conglomerate on the planet buys robert mondavi winery from the family for 1.2 billion dollars now what happens next is that they then create 20 new SKUs, right all with the Robert Mondavi family label on it, right? But these wines don't come anywhere from any kind of Mondavi vineyard. They come off of these industrially farmed, huge 
Central California Valley uh, vineyards, thousands and thousands of acres, right? So now they ramp production up from, say, you know, a million cases a year to five million cases a year, right? right. With this cheap wine, and they put this label on it, right? And so, and and continue the advertising to have people believe that you're drinking from the Madavi family vineyards. That's not true, right? And so that's how. That's how these companies come in. They can pay a billion dollars, then make the company five times as big and five times more profitable. And it looks like the billion dollars is a great investment. So that's kind of how it's done. But the public doesn't have any idea of that, right? But that's how it works. Now, how do they make all this wine? Well, this is another problem. This is the problem. How do they make all this wine? How do they make this vast amounts of wine in these factories? Well, they use chemicals and additives because you can't make wine, you can't make natural wine, and I'll explain to you why in a moment. You can't make wine in large quantities without the use of these chemicals and additives. So there are 76 additives, 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Now, why don't consumers and the people who are listening to this podcast, why don't they know about the 76 additives? Why didn't I know about the 76 additives? Because the wine industry has spent millions of dollars in lobby money to keep contents labeling off of wine. So there's no transparency. So the wine industry wants to say, well, these additives are okay. And we're like, well, not so much. Right. Of the 76 some of them are natural products. We agree with that, but four of them are highly toxic, right? Now, the problem is I don't know which of the 76 additives or treatments or manipulations have been put in my wine that I'm drinking because there's no label, because there's no transparency. So, you know, we just say to the wine industry, hey, if you think that all these additives are okay— and you've been able to get the government to go along with it, including the four that are very toxic, right? If if, if you think that's okay, why would you oppose transparency and labeling? Why not just tell me what's in the wine? Here's the problem. If a wine label had an ingredients label on it, it would look just like the rest of processed foods. It'd have this long, it'd have this rectangular shape, right? Just like other processed foods. With a whole bunch of chemicals in it, you have no idea what they are. You have no idea what they mean. You have no idea what they do or the implications of what they might do to you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason there's not a contents label on there. But we can assume uh, well, with the majority of wine that we buy that it's going to contain these. You, you can be certain okay. that I don't care if you're paying $150 a bottle or $15 a bottle. You are drinking additives. Period. End of story. So why do they have to add on the label that it contains sulfites? Well, all wines and, uh, and any other fermented product, all wines and other fermented products contain sulfites. Sulfites are naturally occurring in the fermentation process. Mm -hmm. And so this contains sulfites is, is really a red herring. It, it, all wines, whether the question in sulfites is whether or not and to what dose has sulfur dioxide been added to the wine. Now, sulfur dioxide has been used for thousands of years as a wine preservative. So there's nothing new about using sulfur dioxide. There's, there is as a 
as a stabilizer. So sulfur dioxide, depending upon the amount that's added, will act as, let's say, you could add five milligrams, which is about five parts per million, up to the U.S. limit is 300 parts per million or 300 milligrams, right? So you can, at five, at five milligrams or five parts per million, you're, it's, it, it's simply acting as a wine stabilizer. It just stabilizes the wine, makes it easier to kind of move it from place to place and keep it safe. Uh, you'll see naturally occurring sulfites from anywhere from five parts per million up to as high as 70 parts per million, but we normally don't see we don't normally see them over about 20 or 25 parts per million. Now we do lab testing on every wine that we drink and sell. We can talk more about that in a moment. So we 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 test for sugar, we test for mold, we test for alcohol. See another collusion between the U.S. government and the wine industry is that see it's kind of surprising to hear people to hear the wine guy say that alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin and, and a very destructive drug. And so we have to be very careful with alcohol, right? And so, which is why we only sell and drink low alcohol wines. But here's the problem. While most people don't consider the amount of alcohol in a wine bottle, they just don't pay any attention to it. They should, but they don't because it's, because it's toxic. They should be drinking lower alcohol wines. They also, lower alcohol wines also taste better. Not only are they better for you, but they taste better. But here's the problem with alcohol stated on a bottle of wine. By law, it's not required to be accurate. It can be off one or two percentages. One and a half percent. So if you're drinking wine that says it's 14%, it could be 15 and a half percent and still be legal. Mm-hmm. I don't drink anything over 12 and a half percent. We don't sell anything over 12 and a half percent. And so, and most of the wines I drink are between nine and 11 and a half percent. Just because I prefer the taste of a lower alcohol wine, I also like to drink wine. I drink about a bottle a day, uh, only at night, and um, that's over a course of several hours, probably a three or four hour period. And so it's, you know, I want to be able to drink. Most people don't have a glass of wine; they have several, and so the only way to lower the dose amount of alcohol is to drink a lower alcohol wine. But I also happen to think they taste better. They're friendlier with food. And they're just more elegant. And so when you remove alcohol from wine, you remove density. But the wine industry loves alcohol. And so alcohol has been increasing in commercial wines for the last 30 years. 30 years ago, American wines were also 12 or 12.5% at the top. Now they average nearly 15%. And the reason that the wine industry loves alcohol is because alcohol is a domino drug. Now, just like cocaine. So what I mean by a domino drug is that the more you drink it, the more likely you are to drink more of it. Mm-hmm. And so this is a domino effect. So if you want to sell more wine, you sell higher alcohol wines, that calls people to drink more, right? So you sell more wine. But couldn't the so, same thing be said for dry farm wines with having a lower alcohol, so you have to drink more if you want to, say, like get a buzz or whatever? Most then, people... You'll get a buzz. Okay. Trust me. At 12.5% or 12%, you get plenty of buzz. Mm-hmm. It's just not an excessive bo- – it's not an excessive 
um, blunt object to your head. You know, it's a more invigorated, it's a lighter, more creatively energized buzz. You know, it's not it's just, it's not the same heaviness that higher alcohol imparts. Right. So, uh, and also our wines are sugar free. So when you when you introduce sugar and alcohol together, you get a particularly nasty effect. And I'll give you an example of how to think about that. So, if you have a shot of tequila. That's a very different experience than drinking a margarita, right, in terms of how you feel and in terms of your hangover. So if you have three shots of tequila or you have three margaritas, you're going to feel a lot better from the three shots of tequila than you would drink from three margaritas. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, and so this combination of, you know, if people are going to drink spirits, they should definitely drink them without sugar. You know, any kind of sugary mixture. I don't recommend that people drink spirits. You probably know in the primal movement and the keto movement and and paleo movement, there's a lot of discussion. Even Dave Asprey at Bulletproof. I mean, there's a lot of discussion around you. If you're going to drink alcohol, you should drink tequila. I'm like, you know, because it's triple distilled. It's made from a plant. It's clean. I agree with all of those assessments. That is true. My problem with it is it's 45 percent alcohol. Right. And so, and so I believe that alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin. And if you believe that alcohol is toxic, then you want to drink a lower alcohol product. And that only gives you a couple of choices. That gives you beer, right? For the, I'm talking about generally speaking for commercially available alcoholic beverages. There are now some alternative, healthier, lower alcohol products coming on the market. But generally speaking. You've got beer, wine, and spirits, and maybe cider. And the problem with ciders is that they're high in sugar. The problem with beer is it's high in maltose sugar in addition to gluten. Uh, there are gluten-free beers, but they're still high in maltose sugar. This is a very specific type, type of sugar that converts rapidly into fat. And a bunch of other lectins, not to mention. yeah. Right. So, so beer is just off the table just altogether. Ciders are off the table because they have too much sugar in them. And then that leaves you with wine. Wine can also commonly contain sugar, but but that's the reason I drink lower alcohol uh, wine. And I don't drink tequila. I don't drink spirits. I haven't drank spirits for 25 years just because I, I just think alcohol is very destructive and dangerous. And so, therefore, if I'm going to drink, I want to drink something at a lower alcohol content. Wine is the most is the thing I'm most interested in. And I mean, there's some now hard kombuchas coming out and other lower alcohol, sugar-free replacements that allow people to drink at lower alcohol. That's just not my drink of choice. Right. I happen to like the experience of of fine handcrafted wines, but they are, but they also need to be added to free, lower in alcohol, and just clean and healthy. Yeah. So why should we be concerned about these? sulfites reaching over, you know, 75 or 80 parts per million. Is that just what's going to make us feel like crap and hungover? Well, we don't know. Here's the thing. There's no real studies on, there's just no studies like in most of nutritional areas. There's just no quality, real quality studies because we can't really, we can't, you know, do, you know, double blind studies. We can't, we don't know what people are doing unless we put them in jail right? Unless we have a controlled environment, we don't know exactly what people do with their nutrition, regardless of what they say. So nutritional studies are very hard. There's just not anyone to fund these studies on the negative effects of 
all the processes and problems in commercial wines. So we don't know. We don't really know the effect of, of sulfur dioxide in higher doses. We don't know the effect of genetically modified commercial yeast. Here's another problem in, in commercial wines. All the wines you see in the grocery store, all the wines you see in your local wine shop, unless it's a natural wine retailer, which is a very specific thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Unless it's natural wine, and natural wine is a very specific category of wine. Dry farm wines only sells natural wines. Natural wines make up less than one-tenth of 1% of all the wines made in the world. So, And dry farm wines is the largest buyer and seller of natural wines in the world. So natural wine is a very, very specific category. One of the... One of the requirements of making a natural wine is that the wine be fermented with wild native yeast that are indigenous to the vineyard where the wine is grown. Now what that means is on the skin of every wine berry in the world, every grape wine berry in the world, on the skin is yeast. It's collected through the air naturally in the vineyard. It's wild and indigenous to the vineyard where the wine is grown, right? And so natural wines are always fermented with this wild native indigenous yeast. Commercial wines, all those wines you see in the grocery store, are not fermented with wild native yeast. They are fermented with a genetically modified lab-grown commercial yeast, and there are three reasons for that. First of all, these native yeast are temperamental. They're wild. They're difficult to work with. And you can't make wine in very high volumes with them. They're just too temperamental. They require too much coddling and attention. The genetically modified commercial lab-grown yeast is, is grown to be very sturdy, very easy to work with. And will withstand a higher alcohol environment than a native yeast. A native wild yeast will die in a high alcohol environment, and then you have a broken fermentation. Okay. And so these native yeasts are temperamental. They're difficult to work with. They require a lot of coddling and attention. You can't make wine in very high volumes. It doesn't fit a factory setting, right? And so these commercial yeast. One other attribute that's interesting about them is that you can purchase them in modified flavor profiles. And what that means is that let's say that you grow this shitty industrial farmed grape in Central Valley of California that has you know zero character and zero quality, right? But you want that wine to taste like it's from Italy, you want it to have a Mediterranean profile, they have a yeast for that, right? And so... <laughs> so weird, yeah. Yeah, so, well, but this is this is what's going on across all of our food supply. This is what's going on with processed food. This is what's... This is everything that has become flavor engineering, mm-hmm. right? But we don't have any idea the impact on our health. We don't have any idea... Um, the impact of these additives, right? We don't know. There's no studies. Here's what we do know for sure. And hundreds of thousands of people know this from drinking our wines. Here's what we do know. If you drink a dry farm wines 
lab tested, quantified, and also elegant and delicious. But but we put health quantification and delicious on the same plane, right? So we only buy 30% of the wines that we taste and test just because either they don't meet our test taste aesthetic or they fail lab results for one reason or another. And so because our quantifications are over and above natural. So all of our wines are natural, but then we have additional criteria like we don't buy wines over 12.5% alcohol. We don't buy wines that have any sugar in them at all. And so we, you know, we, these are quantificate. There are natural wines that have some sugar in them. There are natural wines that are higher than 12.5% alcohol. There are natural wines that we don't like the taste of. We don't buy any of those wines, right? And so now because of our size and our influence in the market, now we have, you know, these family farms. Now we have farmers across Europe. We don't sell any domestic wines. There are no wines made in the United States that meet our standards of purity. Really? So uh, absolutely none. So we only buy and drink and sell wines from very small family farms spread across Europe. And I have four growers in South Africa and two in Chile. But the majority of them are across Europe. And so very small family farms where, you know, these people, these are like activist hippies who are who are just like, have this strong conviction about a lifestyle that they live, about living soils, about regeneration of the earth, about biodiversity and farming, you know, about poly agricultural practices. So these are usually everybody in the family works on the farm. Very often these people don't even consume anything in their body that's not produced on their farm or the farm of a neighbor. Right. And so this is just a way of life for these people. We work with about 700 of these family farms across Europe. They're very small. Um, And so, you know, we have to work with so many of them because their production levels are so low because you cannot make natural wine using native yeast fermentation additive free without the addition or alterations from technology or or chemicals or additives in very high quantities. Mm -hmm. So. That's the reason we work with so many of them. There are only about 1,200 natural wine farms in the world, right? And there are about 250,000 wineries in the world, right? And so it's uh, it's a very, very small percentage of the overall production. And again, most of these wine assets, the ones that you know and see, the brands that you know and love and see, are all owned by a handful of the same companies. Mm-hmm. You just don't know that. Right, and they're producing. When you go to in Central California, you can go down and see these massive wine factories in the Lodi area. It's in the Central Valley of California. These factories are multiple football fields big. I mean, they're huge, huge. We're about to do a we're about to do a film piece on them, uh, a, a social video uh, with some drone footage that we've shot of them just to show people. I mean, you can see them online. If you do image search, you can see, you can see these factories, uh, like Gallo and others. You can see their factories, but, but, we're about to produce a, a short film on it to show people the scale of what's happening, and the poison that is that that is pervasive in these wines. I mean, it's just like you cannot make wine. It's 
statistically impossible to make wine in this volume without the use of these chemicals and additives. Right. So when when you buy a dry farm wine, you can expect it to be sugar-free, low in sulfites, lower alcohol, like 12, 12.5 or, or below, and also it's organically grown, uh, small production, mycotoxin-free. But what if you are not going through dry farm wines? If you, Todd, were to walk into a grocery store, what do you look for when you look at a label? Well, unfortunately, there's... Uh, unfortunately, there there's not a good answer to that. Um, I, I'm, I answered a couple of different ways. So, if if I'm going to look for lower alcohol first, and that's going to almost invariably come from Europe, okay. so I'm probably going to look in France, right? Because France is going to be the, the most likely place to find a low alcohol wine because of the weather, right? So it's generally cooler and wetter there, more so than Italy or Spain, as an example, which are both warmer and drier. And so you're likely to find – so I, I'm going to look to France. But even in the grocery store, even these French wines, they're going to still be mass production. They're still they're, – they're not going to be natural products. Even if a wine is organic – doesn't mean it's natural mm-hmm. all natural wines are organically grown but not all organic wines are natural and that's a big distinction that's where the yeast and um, primarily primarily the primary difference between an organic wine and a natural wine is going to be native yeast fermentation that's going to be the primary difference so I would look to France but but if you live in a major market, like if you're in New York or Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Miami or Washington or Dallas, if you live in a major market today, natural wines have exploded in popularity. And so now they're still very difficult to find. And unless you live in a major market, you won't be able to find them. If you live in a major market, you can do a, a Google search and you'll likely find a natural wine bar, restaurant, or even in select markets like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, you'll find natural wine retailers. Now, if it's a natural wine retailer, they don't sell commercial wine at all. It's an ethos. Like all they sell is natural wine. Mm -hmm. You won't go into a wine shop and they'll have a natural section. That just doesn't happen. I mean, so because conventional wine shops don't understand natural wine. And so, and they don't know how to, there's no marketplace for them to sell it because nobody knows what it is. And so, but you, you, but you can also download an, a smartphone app, either on Android or, or, or Apple called Raisin, spelled just like the, just like the dried grape. It's Raisin. And Raisin is the only natural wine app map-based app in the world. It's very active in Europe, but certain markets in the U.S. also have activity. So if you were in New York, you would open up Raisin and you could see natural wine retailers, natural wine bars, and natural wine restaurants. That's so cool. if you're if you're in a larger market, you can get access to natural wines. Now, they're not, they're still not going to meet all of dry farm wines criteria, but at least they're natural. Right. Right. And so you're going to feel a lot better from drinking them, even if they're a little higher in alcohol or even if they contain a you know trace amount of sugar or something. But but 
you're still going to feel way better. The thing is, back to your earlier question on sulfites, we don't know. We just don't know why commercial wines make you feel bad and make some people feel very bad. We just don't know. It's probably a combination of different factors. But with no transparency, we don't know what's in the wine, right? We don't know what additives you're drinking. We don't know what chemicals you're drinking. We don't know, you know, we don't know what's in there because it's just no transparency. And so mycotoxins are another great example. So ochratoxin A, which is the primary toxin so that, that we're looking for in mycotoxins, all of our wines are tested for mycotoxins. Now, here's the thing. U.S. wines are never tested. In the EU, it is a requirement that every wine be independently screened for mycotoxins and ochratoxin A. That is a requirement by law. Shocker. In the U.S., it's not required, and here's why, because the test is somewhat expensive. And so through lobbying efforts, they've been able to manage to avoid uh, the requirement to test it. The only time, I love to tell this, the only time a U.S. wine is tested for mycotoxins is if it's exported to Europe Hmm. because the European government requires it. But U.S. wines are never tested. Right. So anyway, that that's you know just some of what you know some of what's happening and why it's important that if you're going to drink wine, uh, then um, I think it's really important to drink natural wines, um, and I think it's also important to drink lower alcohol wines. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed that I, I feel pretty normal the morning after one or two bottles of dry farm wines or natural wines. What What else do people report switching over to more natural? Well, I mean, it, it, you just feel better. There's no brain fog. There's there's no hangover. You'd have to drink a lot of it. I've never experienced a hangover from drinking natural wines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no heaviness. There's no brain fog. There is a light. They're more friendly with food. Alcohol is not food friendly. You don't drink vodka and a salad together, right? I mean, it's just, alcohol is just not friendly with food. Wine can be friendly with food, but it depends on the type of wine and the heaviness of it, right? And so, and the alcohol content. Lower alcohol wines are just fresher and lighter, right? And they're more, you know, you have fish reds, red wines that you can drink with fish, and it's perfectly delightful because the wine is just light and fresh and low alcohol, mm-hmm. and it's really a nice match. So but I think what people, you know, what we experience and people report is no ne- negative remnants from drinking, getting up as you've reported, feeling great the next day. But, you know, then also like the buzz quality. So there's the buzz is just lighter. It's more creative connection. It's more cognitively connected. It's just a lighter, fresher buzz in part because it's much lower alcohol in part because it doesn't have all this other crap in it. Right. It's just it's just lighter and fresher. And so and, you know, wine, natural wine has not been sterilized either with sulfur dioxide. So we talked a bit about sulfur. So depending upon how much sulfur goes into the wine and when and how it goes in, you know, at bottling, commercial wines are sterilized with sulfur dioxide, sterilized to kill everything, every living bacteria, everything possible in that that would be in the bottle that is sterilized with these heavy doses of sulfur dioxide. So early on I said sulfur can go from stabilizing to preserving to sterilization. 
those are kind of the three phases of, of sulfur and its impact on wine. could mm-hmm. be used just a little bit to stabilize the wine to make it kind of safe to move around. It could be used a little bit higher as a preservative to give it a longer shelf life. And then at the final and the larger dose is to actually sterilize it and kill everything possible living in it, also preserving it, also making it extremely stable. This is how commercial wines are treated. And the sterilization, that there are two big problems with it. One, it kills all of the gut-friendly bacteria that is alive in wine. So it kills, it kills all of that. It also, Dr. David Perlmutter, who... New York Times bestselling author on the micro, microbiome, the gut microbiome, uh, and considered to be one of the experts in the world on the topic, just wrote a post a few months ago about dry farm wines and our wines and the gut-friendly bacteria that exist in living natural wines that haven't been sterilized. <clears throat> so the wine has soul and life. It's, it, has, it has energy. And that that commercial wines simply don't have. In addition to that, in addition to that, it natural wines are just alive and fresh. And with this lower alcohol, the beauty about wine is when you sit down at the dinner table. And I only drink at night. I don't drink during the daytime. I don't recommend anybody else does either. I just don't think it's a healthy habit. And there's a whole lot of reasons why I don't drink during the daytime. But at night around the dinner table with friends or family, what, what wine does is it creates love. It creates connection, right? It creates vulnerability, right? So that window of vulnerability comes down and it allows us to see and to be seen. And this is the essence of the human experience is to be seen, to be loved and to love, right? And, Alcohol in low doses, and particularly living natural wines, are just very conducive at creating this kind of warmth and community, right? Where we aren't, we're more available. We're more emotionally available. And when we become more emotionally available, our life becomes more enriched because we're less afraid to be seen, right? And to be seen and to be loved and to love others is the essence of the human experience. You know, wine is just helpful with that. Yeah. And during these times of vulnerability, you don't want to have that brain fog after like, you know, what, how you feel when you drink a few beers and then it's almost like your IQ drops a few points. Yeah. Because you lose cognitive connection, right? You lose cognitive clarity. You lose creative expression that enhances the conversation. Right. And so you want to maintain this cognitive connectivity. Right. And and too much alcohol takes you out of that balance of connectivity. Mm-hmm. It, it impacts the quality of your creative expression. It impacts the quality of your curiosity a little bit, enhances all these things. Too much starts to take away. So that's the reason I think it's really important to to, to drink a lower alcohol, natural, clean product that's going to give you the most heightened experience to optimize that life moment. 
Absolutely. I think that's probably the most underrated benefit of going to dry farm wines is that you can still have those deep connections and it, does, it doesn't take away from that. So just a few more questions for you. I want to be respectful of your time. What's the coolest wine region you've ever visited? Oh, nah, that's tough, man, because they're just so, all so different. You know, uh, probably South Africa, you know, would be like the cool quotient. You know, if I had to say what was the, you know, what was the coolest place, probably South Africa. Mm-hmm. Just because it's such a an extraordinary country that is so outside of what's well, you know these massive sweeping plains that just go on for as far as you can see, and and these swaths of valley that are just like just epic, just epic. The whole the country is just epic. But in addition to that, you know it's very it's such a different sense of place and community i mean it's africa right right? and so you know i I visit beautiful eye-popping wine regions all over europe all the time but you know it's europe and it's not africa (laughs) and so going to africa is just like you know if you've ever seen the movie blood diamond or or you know africa is just exactly what you would expect it to be you know, it's just very Africa. And so I don't know how to explain it other than it's just very African. Right. You know, and and uh, and so it's, it's, it's kind of very much like what you would expect it to be. But then it's sort of surprising in some ways that you didn't expect, like the people are so warm and loving and nice and so authentic. I mean, there's some real bad elements in Africa as well, but I'm just talking about like the African, which are of Dutch descent you know, who are the Caucasians there? I mean, they, they, they're you know, very interesting people. The actual, the Africans are very, you know, very soft, very interesting people, you know, very, just very soft and loving. Now there's a bad element for sure. We've, I've already mentioned that, but I'm just talking about for the regular people, they're just like, you know, just really, really interesting. And so it's so culturally um, so culturally different than anything I've experienced before in a wine region. So that, I would say, you know, Africa, South Africa is definitely the the most interesting. Very cool. So earlier you mentioned about, you know, freedom from attachments um, and challenges. What challenge remains? Is there like a final boss that remains to be defeated for you? Nothing. I mean, you know, so I'm aging. So that, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to, optimize that I think is the next frontier for me. Um, I mean, I've been working on optimizing it for many years, but now it's, you know, it's becoming more acute. So trying to figure out how to optimize that, but I don't, nothing comes to mind. I I think, you know, after five years of regular meditation practice, I, you know, I have a very keen grasp on, you know, the, the power of the mind. And, and, and I think I, I don't, nothing comes to mind that, that, uh, just optimizing the, the aging experience, I think is the thing I am focused on the most now. And that really, most of that is around fasting and, and content continued restrictions on, on my diet that, I, I mean, I just think that fasting is, it's the single greatest tool we have against aging. 
Yeah, less is truly more. So just two more questions for you. If you could have a glass of dry farm wine with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Uh, anyone in history. Wow. Um, damn, man, that's a tough one. Anyone in history, there are so many uh, to choose from. Hmm. Maybe, uh, you know, I think, I think the author of, of a manifesto that was written in 1912 called The Master Key System, it was written by an author named Charles Hannell. It was the precursor of what became the book The Secret. Mm-hmm. Um, the Secret and also The Law of Attraction, both books were written uh, from this manifesto, and the interesting thing about the manifesto is that it was written in 1912 as a U.S. mail 24-week correspondence course on how to uh, how to live uh, an optimized life. And this is in 1912. So I would probably have a glass of wine with Charles Hannell, who wrote this correspondence course, and it's the second most recommended book that I think everyone should read. The first one is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. followed by The Master Key System by Charles Hannell, followed by a long list of other books, but those are the top two I most recommend. Right, yeah, that book is in my living room right now on my to-read shelf. So what wine would you bring? Pinot Dunis. Uh It's a very rare grape that's grown in central France in the Loire, I mean in the Jura region. It's um, it's uh, practically non-existent. We can only get uh, we get maybe six or eight a year, but it's my all-time favorite grape. Pinot is spelled P-I-N-E-A-U, not P-I-N-O-T, and uh, in fact, I named my dog after it. So anyway, that's uh, that's what I would drink. It's what I drank last night. Last question for you: What are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always be done. Uh, meditation. And, uh, and gratitude therapy, just being grateful, trying to be present, uh, living a life of intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, meditation for sure. Awesome. So where can people go to learn more about you, and what can they expect with a uh, Dry Farm Wine subscription? Well, so we're a wine club. If they join our mailing list, which they can do at dryfarmwines.com, we also do special offers throughout the month, but primarily we're a wine club. And we sell and service people who drink wine on a fairly regular basis who want to drink better and healthier. We do have a special offer for your audience today. So if they go to dryfarmwines.com forward slash Nick, N-I-C-K, they'll find an offer for a penny bottle of wine uh, with their first order. And so it's in essence a free bottle of wine. Uh, they can find that at dryfarmwines.com forward slash Nick. And it's a great way to experience lab-tested, all-natural, low-alcohol, sugar-free, keto-friendly, paleo-friendly box of wines. And even though we're a wine club, we don't make it hard to cancel or change or stop or pause. Or uh, We have a very, 
very effective customer portal that allows you to do. Many people sign up and cancel the same day just because they don't want a subscription. They want to wait and see what their experience is. That's about 16% of purchasers. So, you know, we don't make it difficult. We're not trying to lasso anybody into into a, a subscription that they can't get out of. It's just that we sell wine to regular wine drinkers, and they generally want the convenience of of a subscription. Absolutely. Very cool. Any parting words for my listeners, Todd? Love more, meditate, and uh, my favorite quote uh, of recent time, and it's been attributed to everybody from Buddha to Abraham Lincoln, but it goes as follows. When a man looks back on a well-lived life, or a woman, when a human looks back on a well-lived life, we're likely to consider that there were three things that were the most important. How much we lived, how much we loved, how gently we lived, and how gracefully we release the things that are not meant for us. And I think if we can practice that love and gentle living and the surrender and release of things that aren't meant for us, that's a well-lived life. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Todd, thank you so much for the conversation and for your insight. Thanks, man. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review following me on social media at Prime Philosophy and just by spreading the word. Jacoba.